public preferences don't get translated into public policy because the government is bought lock, stock, and barrel by the special interests, like the health insurance industry. And I think we need to watch out because they have a lot more patients than they planned on. They're going to be going to the government for a bailout. And I think the way they're going to get it is they're going to expand the Affordable Care Act, which is subsidies for private insurance. So it's going to be a bailout that you don't even see. This is Wine, Women, and Revolution with your host, Heather Warburton. Hi, and welcome to Wine, Women, and Revolution. I'm your host, Heather Warburton. I'm really excited about my guests that I'm bringing you today. I know I'm a journalist and probably should remain neutral in these sort of things, but I'm not gonna. Uh, Basically, I guess you can kind of call this my official endorsement of the candidate that I'm about to introduce you to, or at least the Wine, Women, and Revolution uh, endorsement. And let me just jump right into it. Welcome to the show, Howie Hawkins. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So you're running for president. We should start off by introducing you that way. <laughs> yeah, it's not what I planned. I'm a retired teamster. I had other plans, but a lot of Greens around the country and in the Socialist Party also encouraged me to run. And there are people that I have a lot of respect for. You know, for example, Bruce Dixon, the late managing editor of the Black Agenda Report. He's a good friend. He really pushed me and probably had the most influence. But right across the country, to people like Matt Gonzalez, who was the almost mayor of San Francisco in 2003, running as a green against Gavin Newsom, now the governor of, of California, who was backed by both the Democrats and Republicans in that race. And Matt almost beat him. So, you know, people like them and others all across the country, I, you know, I couldn't ignore it. And uh, after a couple of months, I said, okay, let's see if, <laughs> if we got some support. We did an exploratory committee, got more support. So I announced on May 28th last year. Yeah, it was right around the time of the Green Party convention, um, the last year's New Jersey Green Party convention, because you were at our convention, is where I think a lot of New Jersey Greens got a chance to meet you in person. And we did a little live segment of an interview. My partner, Brian, interviewed you. So that was a good sort of intro to your campaign for people. Yeah, I I enjoyed uh meeting with the New Jersey Greens, I, you know, of, of green parties around the country. I think you guys have your act together better than most. So I'm hoping we get a good result in New Jersey. Hopefully. And we have a great down ballot candidate before you with Madeline Hoffman. She's just an amazing candidate. She did great last time she ran. So we have a lot of good things to be excited for. But I can't, first I want to start off with you already have won the Socialist Party ballot line. Do you want to tell me a little bit about why you decided to pursue that route? Well, they don't have ballot lines. They, they, they're a party. They carry on the great tradition of Debsian socialism. The old Socialist Party of America split three ways over the Vietnam War. And one branch, which was called Social Democrats USA, basically was pro-war. And although they've recently reorganized and they're more like the Socialist Party USA, but they're small. And then uh, the group in the middle was sitting on the fence, and that's the descendant of that group is the today's Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. And in Socialist Party USA, they were not only against the war in Vietnam, they remained committed to independent political action by the working class, which to me is, you know, the first principle of socialist politics. 
So I'm honored to carry that tradition forward. Uh, so I have their nomination. And, uh, you know, I've been a member since they reorganized after that three-way split in 1973. And uh, so that's, that's why I took their nomination. Um, and of course, I've been organizing in the Green Party since it started in 1984. And, uh, you know, it was Greens mainly that got me to think about it. Then the socialists called me. Right. And I think it's important that, like, you're running on sort of a left unity platform, which, you know, there's this old joke of four leftists walk into a room and they come out with five different factions. You're kind of trying to end that a little bit and really run on some left unity. What sparked you to think that was something you needed to do this time around? Well, given that we have a single plurality winner electoral system, uh, to have a party on the left, we just really need a broad tent of the non-sectarian independent left parties, which would include the Green Party and the Socialist Party. And then there are, you know, eight or so state parties that are independent and progressive, like Peace and Freedom in California, Progressive in Oregon, Progressive and Liberty Union in Vermont, uh, Labor and Citizens Party in South Carolina. So I'm seeking their nominations, not to say we should merge, at least not yet, it's sort of a first date, <laughs> but we're not ready to get married. But let's work together on this campaign and, and then see what the next step is afterwards. So, uh, but I'll tell you, my main thrust is we need to be organizing the people. Trying to organize the left is tough. I mean, you got the circular firing squad thing and everybody's finding little things why they can't work together. And, uh, you know, that's a problem. But meanwhile, the working class in this country votes in lower numbers. People of color vote in lower numbers. Young people vote in lower numbers. I think the task of the independent left party is to organize those people. If we can get them engaged in voting uh, for their interests, uh, we can be a major party and force in this country. So that's my primary focus. Although the more of the non-sectarian left we can get together, the better we can accomplish that mission of organizing the people. So in the Green Party, one of the things that you're trying to accomplish is to get our party to you getting 5% of the vote in the upcoming election. What would that mean for the Green Party if you got 5% of the vote? It would mean we qualify for federal uh, funding for the general election in 2024. And at 5%, see, the major parties have the right to over $100 million dollars. But they don't take that money anymore because $100 million is not enough to run a campaign from Labor Day to uh, Election Day in today's environment. So the last one to take it was McCain in 2008. Obama was the first one to say, I'm not taking it because I can raise more money from you know the rich and the corporations. So uh, that, so it, major parties defined as over 25% of the vote. Between 25 and 5%, a third party would get a prorated uh, portion of that hundred million dollars. So at five percent, maybe it's twenty million. I haven't actually looked at the number. You know, at twenty percent, it might be eighty million. But it's a lot of money. It'd be more than the Greens have ever run on before. Ralph Nader raised eight million dollars in two thousand. That's the most we've ever raised. Um, so this would be a substantial boost to us. And we really haven't come close yet. I mean, Ralph in two thousand uh, got two point seven percent. That's the highest percentage we've got. So that's, a, that's an ambitious goal, but given Trump is a total sociopathic narcissist that's blowing the COVID-19 pandemic, 
and Biden is uh, representing the corporate wing of his party, but the progressive wing, I mean, they were supporting Sanders. And what are they getting from Biden? They're getting a candidate that opposes everything that Sanders was campaigning for, like Medicare for all, a full strength Green New Deal, an economic bill of rights to end poverty and economic despair, and so on. So there's a potential for us to get a lot of those voters. Um, short of uh, 5%, in about 40 of the 50 states, New Jersey's not one of them, but in about 40 of the 50 states, the vote that the presidential candidate gets or another statewide candidate uh, whose vote can be influenced by the coattails of the presidential candidate determines whether that state party has a ballot line for the next election cycle. And ballot lines are important so we can run local candidates and state and congressional candidates. It's a lot easier if you have a ballot line than if you don't. The petitioning requirements generally are a lot less. So in most states where they have this uh, way to get on the ballot, it's one, two, or 3% of the vote. You know, it depends on the state. Every state's got its own laws. Alabama, you need 20%. So they've never oh, had crazy. third party qualified uh, yet. Um, but in most states, it's one, two, or 3%. So those are objectives we feel confident that we can meet in a lot of states. And the Greens had 21 ballots coming in to this election. We're up to about, I think, 25. And of course, instead of getting a million and a half signatures, which is what we probably would have had to get to get on a ballot in the remaining, uh, at that time it was 30 states, you know, from the 21, we count DC. Um, instead of uh, having to do that, well, it's untenable to go out on the street now with this lockdown. So we have uh, written to the states, I know New Jersey's done it, uh, asking the governor and the secretary of state and the legislative leaders to give us relief. And in a lot of states, you know, we've been on the ballot for several election cycles in the presidential election. So they should just put us on in the interest of democracy. And then in some other states, they're filing fees. And so they're saying, just, just let us file the fee. And I believe New Jersey, because your governor had an electronic petitioning for the primaries, uh, the Greens there have asked, let us do electronic petitioning, which I think may yeah, be harder which- than people think. But in well, Jersey, it's very confusing what he's passed now that the way it's written, there's some other weird changes that it sounds like he's making here in New Jersey. Like we do have the ability to collect electronic signatures for you, but it's still very confusing. So we're having to reach out again to the Department of Elections and find out, well, what are you saying here? So we haven't actually even been able to start collecting those electronic signatures for you yet. Well, we pulled together a team of pro bono lawyers and, and ballot access activists uh, that can help the state party. So if you need legal help, you know, get in touch with my campaign and, uh, you know, we'll have somebody that, you know, can help you with any legal angles here. Um, but I think New Jersey, you know, you've got a good start and uh, I'm confident we'll be on a ballot in New Jersey. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we will. Our ballot requirements aren't super high here in New Jersey, like some states that require insane amount of signatures were. That's one of the things that we have pretty good. There's a lot of other very bad duopoly-centric laws, but that one isn't super horrible in, here in New Jersey. But I really want to kind of want to get, you know, push the interview into the meat of what you're running for, what you stand for as a candidate, and how you're different than the rapist with the red hat or the rapist with the blue hat, um, because there's some pretty significant policy differences there, too. So I guess the first one we should talk about, since we are kind of in the middle of, uh, or middle-ish of um, 
world pandemic is your health care. What you're proposing as far as a health care system for people in this country. Well, I'm proposing a Medicare for all system, but it goes beyond the Medicare for all systems <clears throat> that the uh, Democrats have put into Congress. What they're proposing is national health insurance. So you'd have a single public payer pay for all medically necessary services, which is good, but not good enough because it leaves in place private delivery. And so you have the problem of hospital organizations maximizing their income by multiplying fees for service, unnecessary tests, running patients through fast, and also running lean. That's why we didn't have the capacity we needed in this pandemic. So what we wanna do is bring the hospitals and clinics over a 10 year period under public ownership, bring the doctors and the nurses and the other healthcare workers uh, under salaries as public employees, and then have the whole system governed democratically by locally elected boards that federate at the state and national level. So the boards would be two thirds of the uh, board members would be elected by the general public and one third by the healthcare workers. And what we'd be able to do then is make sure that in every healthcare district, local district, healthcare resources were fairly distributed and that uh, we have a rational allocation of resources. So, you know, I'm sitting here in Syracuse on the south side. There are no doctors here. There are no clinics here. Half the people, this is a low income neighborhood, don't have cars. Public transportation is terrible. So people got to walk, even if they're sick, or they maybe get a friend to give them a ride or get a cab or a Lyft or a Uber. Uh, two miles to get to the community health center, which is basically the Medicaid place, or up the hill to the university, uh, to the hospitals. And that's not a fair distribution. And then the hospitals, they're competing with each other for customers. So they all got more MRIs than the community needs, but we don't have clinics and doctors on the south side. So that's what a democratic system uh, would, would uh, add to the, the picture. Even with Medicare for all, it's a very centralized bureaucratic system. I'm on Medicare and I got a dispute with them about my, you know, cause you still pay premiums under the Medicare we got. And they said, they didn't, they didn't count some checks I sent them when I first got in. And so I'm disputing with them and they're telling me by April 25th, I'm gonna lose my coverage. Um, so, you know, and when you call them, you get the answering machine and every time you get a live person, it's a different story. You know, that would not happen if we had a local elected health board where you get, you know, your issues dealt with locally. So that's another reason to have a, a democratic national health service, community controlled. And it just would provide the resources the community needs. Like hospitals now, I think, normally are operating at like a 95% bed fill, you know, fill already. So if there's ever anything, you know, even slightly out of the ordinary, they don't have enough beds. But when something like this come along, comes along, there's none of that buffer built into it when you're operating purely for profit. Like that's a major thing that would be very different under a system like you're proposing is that we'd have some of that buffer, some safety net built into these systems because we're not trying to make as much profit for shareholders as possible. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we've been warned for decades about the potential of a serious pandemic like we're now in. I mean, it was part of Ralph Nader's standard speech, whether he was running for president or speaking to a college audience. He always talked about the danger of pandemics and how the government was not uh, preparing us and public health officials from the Center for Disease Control 
and the National Security Council, everybody's been warning the government that we're not prepared. But in a for-profit healthcare system, you don't care about that. You just care about the next quarter's earnings and you want to run lean, like you said, so that you're filled to capacity. It's like a hotel. You don't want ex- you don't want people, you don't want empty beds. And you know, that's not the way to run something that should be a public service and a human right, not a buy or die commodity. Right. You can't make, this is something I've said a lot, you can't make money off of safety. Safety is something that you spend money on to get. Safety and health insurance or a healthcare system is providing safety. It shouldn't be providing profit. Safety is something that you don't make money off of. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's something I've been like screaming at people, I feel like, for a very long time now. <laughs> well, most people agree with you. I mean, the polling shows... People have supported a Medicare for all type system, national health insurance type system, since the Truman administration when it first was introduced in Congress, right after World War II. So it's the problem, and this is the problem of our political system. Public preferences don't get translated into public policy because the government is bought lock, stock, and barrel by the special interests, like the health insurance industry. And I think we need to watch out because they have a lot more patients than they planned on they're going to be going to the government for a bailout. And I think the way they're going to get it is they're going to expand the Affordable Care Act, which is subsidies for private insurance. So it's going to be a bailout that you don't even see. And that's a problem because, you know, the public money we got, we need for other things, like a Green New Deal to address this climate crisis. That was exactly where I wanted to to go next was the Green New Deal. (laughs) Because this is something you've been running on for, what is it, 10 years now? So I wanted to kind of get into how your Green New Deal is different than like the AOC Democrat stripped down Green New Deal. Right. I was the first candidate in this country to run on a Green New Deal in 2010, running for governor of New York. We're coming out of the Great Recession. So it was as much an economic recovery program as a climate action program. So we led with the Economic Bill of Rights, you know, rights to job and income above poverty, health care, education, housing, and a secure retirement. And the investments in a clean energy economy uh, were part of what would uh, stimulate the economy and get us you know, going again. Um, and in the years since then, the climate crisis has worsened. More and more people recognize that. And now it's an existential threat. So what I'm calling for, we call it the eco-socialist Green New Deal, because we've got to take over the energy, transportation, and manufacturing sectors and do a lot of that work through the public sector. Like we did during World War II, we had an emergency then, and the federal government took over or built a quarter of the manufacturing capacity in the country in order to turn industry on a dime into what they called the arsenal of democracy. And that armed the US, the UK, and Russia to defeat the Nazis. And we need to do nothing less through the public sector to defeat climate change. So that's why we call it an eco-socialist Green New Deal. And we can go through you know, different industries as to what we want to do is rebuild all our manufacturing and both in the sense of like bringing back a machine tool industry, which we've almost completely lost. And you need that to build the manufacturing equipment for intermediate and consumer goods. But also everything we produce should be done on a zero waste, clean energy basis. So for example, cement, that's 5% of the world's carbon footprint because they put calcium carbonate, heat up the cement, the calcium hardens the cement and the carbonate is carbon, goes in the atmosphere and heats up the planet. We need to find another way, but there are other ways of making cement. So we got to build new cement factories 
And we can go through all the technologies from plastics to steel. And there are ways to do it where there's no waste. Instead of uh, extracting materials from the earth, running them through the economy, and then throwing them back in the earth and polluting the earth, we can recycle everything that is a byproduct of production and then have the manufacturers take back their products when they're used up and recycle those materials and have a much smaller impact on the environment. So that is what we need to do across the board. And that's a massive job. We've done a budget for our Eco-Socialist Green New Deal. And it includes the Bill of Rights as part of our uh, economic Bill of Rights as part of our program. But just the clean energy side is 27 trillion over 10 years. The only one who came close to that among the Democrats was Bernie Sanders. He had 16.3 trillion over 10 years, but he had a longer timeline. He got to 100% clean energy and zero to negative greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. We're going for 2030 because that's what the climate science and the carbon budgets indicate a rich country like the United States needs to do to really avoid a climate catastrophe. So that is uh, the green economy, we call it the green economy reconstruction program. Now, the Democrats at the end of uh, November 2018 uh, with the Sunrise Movement, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, they sat in Pelosi's office and the Green New Deal went viral. And good for them. The problem is when the non-binding resolution for a Green New Deal was introduced into Congress by AOC and Senator Ed Markey, they took the brand and diluted the content. So we had a ban on fracking and new fossil fuel infrastructure, which is essential in, in fighting the climate. We can't burn more fossil fuels. They stripped that out. They stripped out the phase out of nuclear power. They stripped out the deep cuts in military spending to help fund the Green New Deal. And they extended the deadline from our 2030 to their 2050. You give politicians another 20 years and they're just gonna dawdle, they're gonna wait. So even then, Pelosi's never let them vote on it in the House. She doesn't want a Green New Deal. And she calls it the Green Dream, she's very arrogant. And uh, McConnell let the, them vote in the Senate because he wanted the Democrats to go on record. Half of them are running for president at that time. And Schumer and Markey said, oh, this is a trick. We're gonna vote present. And all the good Democratic senators did, except for four of them voted with the Republicans, no. So, you know, the Democrats have taken the Green New Deal brand, except, and I would give Bernie a pass on this, the rest of them, uh, they're not really for it. So if for no other reason, that's why the Greens need to be in this election so we can bring the real Green New Deal to the fore. I kind of always said they kind of took something that was really good, stripped out all the good stuff, which being anything that challenged the capitalist system. And then we're like, OK, this is what's left. We'll propose that and call that a Green New Deal when really it doesn't accomplish that much, doesn't have that much teeth and doesn't challenge the capital system that we have currently. Yeah, all the Democrats, except Sanders, they were an order of magnitude, you know, a decimal point less. So they were one to three billion or trillion over 10 years. And most of that was subsidies and tax breaks for solar and wind producers. Uh, some mandates here and some regulations there, which the vested interests would fight. And Biden was the worst. He wants to build more nuclear power plants. He wants to keep burning fossil fuels with carbon sequestration, an unproven technology. He's basically for the Democrats' policy under Obama and reaffirmed by the Democratic National Committee in 2018. All of the above is their energy policy, which is a euphemism for saying we're going to frack the hell out of the country and be the world's number one producer of oil and gas and heat up the planet. And, you know, that's just not acceptable. 
No, it's literally going to kill us. These policies that they're proposing are going to make the Earth not habitable for human existence. So, you know, this is kind of an important thing that maybe other people need to be thinking about, but thank you for bringing up all these subjects. The next topic I wanted to touch on from your platform is you support reparations, correct? Correct. Do you want to go into a little bit about what your policy is there? Sure. Uh, For African-Americans, I want to see this uh, bill that John Conyers introduced more than 20 years ago. It's for a commission to study reparations for African-Americans. And I I think study is the next step because the African-American community needs to uh, speak up for what they feel their needs are in, in a reparations program and come to some consensus about that. There's a big debate on how much of it should be individual reparations, you know, going to African-American families whose wealth on average is one-tenth of white families, and how much should be collective reparations, setting up Black-controlled institutions. The original reparations demand in the modern reparations movement from James Foreman, when he went to Riverside Church, he said the churches and synagogues should uh, finance uh, Black-owned newspapers, radio stations, TVs, and a research center. So if you just give money to people in a system that still has institutional racism and capitalist exploitation, in, in not too long a term, that money's gonna end up in the same hands that have concentrated wealth now. So that all needs to be discussed. And uh, so we come up with a smart reparations program. And people say, well, slavery was a long time ago. Yeah, it was, but it started then. Then we had Jim Crow, then we had uh, the failure to introduce, uh, enforce the anti-discrimination laws since the 1960s. And then after the Great Recession, Black America lost half its wealth because of this uh, illegal stealing of people's homes with things like robo-signing and predatory lending and foreclosures that targeted the Black community and other communities of color. So reparations for African-Americans. I think we need to repair our relationship with indigenous people. We have 370 treaties with indigenous people on U.S. territories that have been violated. There are services we're obligated to provide. We have not. We've stolen land that those treaties preserve. So we've got to, you know, rectify and reconcile that issue. There's a treaty that uh, Mexican-Americans in New Mexico, they have land rights under that, that have been violated. It's called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the you know, Mexican War in 1848. Um, so, and then I would say we have, we've gone through the drug war and we should have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission so that the communities that were devastated, mostly communities of color, low-income communities of color, can you know, speak to what happened and what they need to repair the damages. And so I think reparations, particularly for African-Americans, that's obviously on the table, but there are other communities in our country that, uh, you know, need some uh, help, you know, get into where they ought to be. So that's my thinking on reparations. I I agree with every word you just said there. Uh, (laughs) That's maybe why I'm endorsing you, uh, because I have a tendency to agree with most of what you say most of the time. One more thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap it up, because we've just about run out of time, is that obviously education is something that's very important to you. Because if anyone hasn't Googled a picture of Howie yet, and if you get a picture of him in his house, you've got a library of legend. It goes down your hallway. You know, you don't have one of these like Beauty and the Beast libraries. Like it's in your home. Books, you live with books. Like 
all over your home. So obviously education is something very important to you. What does your vision for education look like in this country? Well, first of all, we got to stop the privatization into charter schools. That is stealing money from the public schools. The charter schools on average perform no better, even though they're able to send back students that perform purely poorly to the public schools. This is a whole scam. It's a money-making thing. It's not about educating children. And any innovation we need to do that charter schools claim to do, we can do in the public school system. You know, we have a locally controlled system. Local school boards can, you know, uh, organize that within their public school system. We need equitable funding. And right now it depends largely on a property tax and property ta- property is unequally distributed. So what we need to do is rely less on property tax, maybe none on property tax, let property do the thing, you know, protect property, have it paid for the police and the fire, but <clears throat> schools should be paid for out of a progressive tax like income tax. And the federal government should help with that, uh, help the states with that. Uh, we got a problem with segregation. We are more segregated in our schools than we were in the 1980s. We had a brief uh, reduction in segregation after the uh, Civil Rights Act passed and after Brown v. Board of Education. really didn't get going until the 70s and only lasted about a decade. And since then, we've become more segregated, not only by race, but by economic class, which corresponds a lot to race. And so we're actually more segregated than we were before the Civil Rights Movement. And segregation, uh, you know, basically is counter to having a society where we're a multicultural society, but all the cultures don't understand each other. And I'm as concerned about, you know, white folks being segregated in lily white suburbs with gated communities and having myths about the rest of the people in this country and acting in ways that are racist upon those myths as I am about the lack of opportunity that segregation uh, provides to students of color. So I think we need the federal government to step up with incentives to uh, begin to desegregate our schools. And I think, you know, the way to do that is like uh, what they did in, they still do in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they do in, uh, or did do in Wake County, North Carolina. And that is you have, you can't under court decisions, uh, try to have a fair distribution by race, but you can by economic class. And because, you know, people of color are disproportionately in the lower classes, when you do a class uh, distribution so that all the schools are diverse economically, you get racial diversity as well. And I think that's the kind of program we need to encourage. Um, so yeah, that's those are some of the highlights of an education program. As far as higher education goes and preschool, I'm for tuition-free public education lifelong from pre-K and childcare through K-12 and then post-secondary colleges and universities, technical schools, continuing adult education, all the public institutions should be tuition-free. And then students got to borrow money, even if they're going to public schools and they're tuition-free, to pay for housing and, you know, living expenses if they don't want to try to go to school and, and work at the same time. And then some school students go to private schools. We should have a federal uh, loan program that doesn't collect interest, what quote-unquote interest should be adjusted to the cost of living. So you're paying back what you borrowed in, in uh, real dollars. And, you know, my program is... Uh, after you graduate, you pay 10% of your income above the poverty line for 20 years. And after that, the rest is forgiven. And I prefer that to doing a, you know, blanket forgiveness 
because, you know, they're Harvard graduates that went to Goldman Sachs and started out at $75,000 a year. Uh, the working class should not be paying their loans off for them. Uh, they should pay at 10%. They probably at 10% of their income will be able to pay off their loans. Whereas if you uh, are a public school teacher and you go to a low income poor district and don't get a very good salary, 10% of your income for 20 years probably won't pay your loan off, but then it's forgiven. So that, and I think I would do that retroactively and people who have been paying uh, both interest and principal, uh, that would be counted toward that uh, reduction of principal and the years in which in this 20 year program. So I would institute that retroactively as well as going forward. You've got a really comprehensive program. There's no way we could touch on all of it today. But if people want to read the entire rest of your platform, where can they find you if they want to sign up and volunteer, if they want to give you money, where, how can they get in touch with you? They should go to the campaign website, which is HowieHawkins.us. H-O-W-I-E-H-A-W-K-I-N-S, all one word, dot U-S, like U-S, us. Um, and if it's just put that in your search engine and you'll get to the website. And I wanted to talk a little bit about donations before I let you go, that you can get some matching funds this campaign if you reach a certain threshold. And what's that threshold that you have to reach to get some matching funds? We need $5,000 in 20 states in contributions of $250 or less. And we're making good progress on that. Uh, Illinois and Florida in the last day or two just passed that threshold. Um, I think we're up to six or seven states. We need 20. So we're closing in on it. And what it means is uh, every dollar that you contribute up to $250 will be matched by Uncle Sam. And that is a program that was instituted after the Watergate scandals. And I am the only candidate in the United States seeking federal primary matching funds. This is money we have to use for the primary period. It doesn't count. We can't use it for the general election. So we need that to help with our ballot access efforts and to pay you know, the staff that's working on my campaign. And uh, so um, you know, the major party candidates don't use it because if you accept matching funds, you can't spend more than $50 million on your primary. And that's not enough for the corporate candidates. It's more than we're gonna be able to raise. So this primary matching funds program is very important to our campaign and, and our ability to run a credible campaign and force our way into the national debate where we can raise the issues we've been talking about. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I've learned like four things in my conversation with you today already. I've learned about concrete and, you know, lots of interesting things. Like, I really appreciate that you come at this from an intelligent, educated, you know, very thoughtful place. And I think that's what we need in a president, especially with what we're going through now. Times are a little tough. So we definitely need a president that comes from a place of thought and reflection. And thank you for that. Well, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. To my listeners, I hope you enjoy meeting uh, my man, Howie, that I'm endorsing here today. We appreciate you so much and everything you do to help us. The future is yours to create. Go out there and create it.